Kia ora, welcome to Skeezy Deezy. Um, today, I'm not going to talk about the horrors of the new New Zealand government. Um, I mean, yeah, I'll get into it in brief, but it's bad. They're already fighting amongst themselves, which is like very promising. Um, although it is just old, um, old Seymour... Uh, giving the media a little bit of sucky sucky um, but yeah it's it's not looking good folks um, anyway today what I really want to talk about is more Eastern Front World War 2 the Eastern Front of World War 2 is just endlessly fascinating um like world war ii in general is is just so fucking huge um yeah it's regrettable that all those young lads died but boy howdy did they give the world a lot of um material to discuss till the end of time um yeah so Buttery Biscuit, basically, um, what I want to focus on is the Battle of Korsk. So, you have this, like, you know, I think I talked about it in the Stalingrad episode, but you have these massive encirclements, invasions of uh, the Soviet Union in 1941, 1942, um, the north and middle parts, they can't really muster the same attacks. There's a siege near Leningrad, and then there's this sort of like slow grinding front in the center. Um, but to the south, the Germans make more incredible gains. Although this time, the Russians are better at escaping encirclement. Um, it's something weirdly that often doesn't seem to be a big part of historical recollection but like yeah um the the soviets were much better at escaping encirclement um in 1942 they were in 1941 i mean yeah it makes sense because they kind of learned but still so you have these big attacks they get to, to stalingrad and they end up getting their asses whooped there. Um, and they begin this big, big retreat. Now, I can't remember if Kharkov is before or after Korsk. I think it's after. No, before. Okay. Gonna have to check my sources on this. Um, Kharkov is basically the last big hurrah of the Germans. It's the last, I, I think it ends up with an encirclement. Um, this is like von Manstein's um, big moment. This is his, this is his pog moment. Um, but, yeah, it's sort of like a, a last hurrah. Um, it's the last time the German army really successfully executes a, I guess what we would call an operational level um, 
success. So, so when you're talking like levels of warfare, you've got tactical, which is sort of like on the battlefield, um, and tactical go down to like individual soldier in it. Um, oh my fucking god! This, so last time. I was commuting, there was this like little moped on the motorway going like 50k's an hour. And he was there again today. And now there's just a truck going 60k's an hour. This is a nightmare. Um, let's just go the zoomies. Life is a highway! Um, anyway, so tactical level is sort of like individual soldiers on the battlefield, isn't it? Um, and then you've got the strategic level, which is like national, nation state levels. That's sort of like mostly concerning like supplies and logistics. Um, now in between the two, and this is a level of warfare that was developed, uh, at least the theory around it, I believe was developed by the Russians. Um, although quickly adapted by the Americans, um, was the operational level. So sort of not quite as granular as tactics. So tactics is concerned about things like um, sight lines. What can you see from your location? How does that change how you approach the situation? Um, individual buildings. Um, how does that change your approach? Uh, what weapons do you have available, like specific weapon platforms, and how they change your approach? Operational level is more, and whereas strategic is sort of like how many bodies can we fit into this area, like um, looking at coastlines, looking at um, like biomes that you're getting into. Operational level, think like. Um, like think up, uh, think an area cut up into like I don't know five kilometer hexagons or squares, and like at operational level you consider the conditions inside those like five kilometer squares, but you don't consider the granularities of like oh um, I don't know like lines of sight and all that kind of thing. Um, what you call them? Um, yeah, so individual lines of sight and stuff. You, you more consider like, oh, okay, this is a forested area. Um, you know, probably not going to see tanks in there as a high priority. Oh, this is a mountainous area. It's probably going to be easier than here. Um, but not like the strategic, like, this region is mountainous. It's more like this particular part of the plane is higher than the others. Um, and you don't quite get as granular as tactical concerns with, like, um, the specifics of what squads are going where. It's more the, I think at the smallest, generally battalion, but usually brigade level and higher. So a brigade is like three battalions, a battalion is like fucking, I don't know, a thousand people usually. Um, so you're looking at like the movements of 3,000 people at least, usually operational level, um, especially when you're looking at something like the 
Eastern Front, um, World War II in general, um, or say the Iran-Iraq War, you're looking at um, divisional level movements, which is a number of brigades, usually division like shorthand 10,000 or so people, including including support staff. Um, so yeah, you have this operational level of warfare. I've completely lost track of where I was. Um, but yeah, you, I think yeah, I think Man, I think it's actually before. I think it was before Kursk. Manstein has this big masterstroke. Um, he gets his dick hard. Um, he absolutely like writes himself up after the war. But anyway, ignore this. Um, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll talk about that if I have time. But um, and you end up with this front line that's more or less straight north-south, except for this huge bump around Kursk on like the Russian side. Now. Manstein sees here an opportunity to do like a quick little pincer movement, cut off this like significant amount of Red Army troops, shorten the front line, um, generally just like all sorts of good shit. Um, however, the High Command and Hitler believe there's not enough forces available to do it. So they insist on delaying the assault until there's sufficient force concentration. Which it's always framed as being a huge mistake. It wasn't entirely unreasonable. Um, it's entirely possible that if they had followed the Manstein plan, like Kursk would have been just as a big of a failure as it was historically. Because, yeah, like this wasn't the, the Russia of 1941 they were fighting. This is the Russia of 1943, which is a much scarier foe. Um, but ultimately, um, they do delay. Now the Russians find out, and so they turn the like front lines the Germans are planning to attack on along into a fucking nightmare. Um, they practice this this like defensive method called deep battle, which is basically like they know the Germans are going to get through the front line. So they build up like eight lines of defense, like eight intercollecting lines of defense. So when you break through one, you're getting fired at by the next one as you're still trying to clean up the first. Um, they put down tons of mines. They do shit like they just dig in tanks and turn them into turrets. Part of this is to save fuel. Like they still have to run the engine to turn the turret. Um, but part of this is to save fuel. Part of this is to save crew. Um, because if you bury the tank, you only need the gunner and the, um, loader. So, like, like, yeah, who the fuck cares? Um, it, it saves on trained tank crew. Uh, it also makes them harder to destroy. They just basically, like, they get to have, um, like, the strategy game player's dream of just, like, Oh yeah, you've got like a month or whatever, or however long it was, to like build the most ridiculous defensive lines possible. And then it comes to like the Germans attack from north and south. So, one of the things they did have was they had some of the newer tanks for this. I think this is like the first time on the Eastern Front that Panthers and Tigers 
In fact, the, I don't know if pan, tigers were there. I know panthers. I'm pretty sure panthers were. Would have played in large numbers. They also had 90 of these monstrosities called Ferdinands, which were just like heavily armoured assault guns with an 88mm cannon. Um, and these could knock out any Russian tank from his little distance. But most of them broke down. Um, they got called like the elephant because they were so huge, but also kind of useless. Um, they kind of modelled the elephants of like ancient warfare, which were pretty hit and miss. So, yeah, you have this slow grinding assault where the Germans move through and move through, but they don't, they never fully break the line. This is also when we get the world's largest tank battle, um, Prokhorovka, I think. I don't know the pronunciation. But basically, like, both sides had no infantry support, and it was just like a thousand Russian tanks and like 500 German tanks all just happened to be on the same field. Um, and they just went Call of Duty styles on each other. Um, with the Russian tanks, because so many of the crews were poorly trained, they were just doing shit like ramming the German tanks. Um, because like, well, for one, they knew that their guns wouldn't penetrate the German tanks. But also, like, they were aware of the fact that they would control the battlefield after the battle. Like, they were very confident in the fact that they were not going to lose the battlefield. Um, so they knew that every single German tank they knocked out, the Germans would have to get out and fucking gap it. Um, or, like, the Russian infantry that would eventually come would knock them out. I don't know, it always gets framed as, like, a silly move of desperation, but, like, the ramming kind of makes sense. Um, like, given the level of training, the equipment they had, and the situation they were in, like, fuck yeah, turn your old light tank into, like, a fucking guided missile. Um, yeah, eventually the Germans are too threatened by attacks to, like, cut off their pincers, so they pull back. Having wasted thousands of men. Uh, this tank that achieved sweet fuck all. Um, the Russians, like, slowly grind. I don't think they really have any major assaults in this time period. But they're building up for Operation Bargington, which is just like... It's this ridiculous assault. Um, I do have to check to see if this assault is larger than Barbarossa, but it's just like the whole line, they just push forward, and they basically push forward as long as they've got supplies. That's like the big constrainer on the, the Red Army in World War II, is their supply lines. Um, so, like, same for the Germans, they just, like, unlike the Soviets, the Germans didn't care if their soldiers outran their supply as much, um, because they thought the enemy would just surrender when they got there, um, and they got, like, Pikachu surprised faced um, when they didn't, and then all their soldiers froze. Um, really funny, dumb shit. The Americans had a fantastic supply chain, um, too bad their soldiers were kind of average, um, for most of the war, um, like, basically the, the American difference was because they had such a large population, and they were sort of 
extremely selective in their drafting. They were basically like, you know, they're basically only drafting people above six foot. I mean, that's like an exaggeration, but like you get the point. Um, and like, so they could, they go into a fight against these like malnourished fucking Slovakians on the Western Front, and they like barely managed to scratch out a win. And they're like, "Oh yeah, America!" And it's like, dude, you were fighting like, you you were fighting someone who hasn't eaten meat in their entire life, and like not through lack of choice, just through like sheer poverty. Um, they've got a body weight of like 30 kgs, um, and you come in here like 90 kgs. 2% body fat, like, just this absolute ripped titan, um, and you still barely managed to scratch out a win, uh, anyway, uh, that's all, like, besides the point, maybe I should have, like, a World War II gripes episode, um, but with the, yeah, so I guess I'll briefly get into, like, Germans and just straight up telling fucking lies, um, Immediately after World War II, there was this weird... Oh, not immediately. It was... It took, it took like, ten years. But especially once the Cold War started heating up, and you had, like, the Korean War going on, and, like, Russia had gone from um, our friend in the East. Really interesting. If you ever get the chance, look at some, like, old propaganda reels from, like, 1940s um, about Russia. Because they're, like, they're all, like unequivocally like supportive and it's like I can imagine the whiplash of like the 1950s it's like oh but these guys are bad now um but there was this real desire to like learn what had happened on the eastern front there weren't many official Russian histories that uh, for kind of good reason like published in English I think there were like some there was some description of it but like nothing that was too in-depth nothing that was too like um, historically accurate um, and like for good reason like World War II completely fucked Russia Russia like Russia still hasn't recovered de demographically speaking from the two world wars like every other country more or less has like Russia just like yeah no China has like Russia just straight up hasn't like they they just got turbo fucked um and they didn't want that, like, weakness to be broadcast. So, yeah, they covered a lot of stuff up about World War II. Um, which is kind of, like, I don't know, understandable, have a nice day. Um, and so there was, like, you know, there was this desire, especially among, like, people who hadn't been in the war were super interested in World War II, which has been the case since then. Uh, a lot of people who are involved in World War II don't really want um, to talk about it, but, yeah, I guess that's how it tends to be with modern war, so, no, well, no, like, Americans love talking about how they fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, so it's kind of fucked, um, anyway, but you have all these generals who have, like, served out their prison sentences, um, and they just write their memoirs, and the thing is, especially when it comes to the Eastern Front, they just... They just basically, like, make everything up. Um, and that's because they know there's no... Like, it's not like the Russians are going to come out and refute them. I mean, I think the Russians did, but, like, 
it got absolutely ignored. Um, it's here that you get a lot of the groundwork for the clean Wehrmacht idea. So this is where, like, this is the root cause of, like, all those people being like, oh, you know, there were Nazis, and then there were, like, um, people who fought alongside the Nazis did exactly the same thing as the Nazis did, but um, somehow were, like, they were just following orders, just serving their country, uh, blah, blah, blah. Because um, that's sort of what they all say. They're all like, oh, you know, I kind of resented the Nazi stuff, but, you know, those Russians were such a huge threat that we needed to fight them. Um, yeah. And so, like, Guderian is kind of generally pretty chill on this. Like, he's actually not too bad. He talks about, like, a lot of stuff like what I would have done to win the war, um, which is largely, like... <laughs> It's sort of like he didn't know the full strategic considerations, so it's like kind of understandable. But um, Manstein is the worst. Manstein is just like, oh yeah, I basically single-handedly, like all the successes of Germany are single-handedly my, 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 like within my purview. Every single mistake was because someone else did something. Like, to the extent that I think some of the other German generals were like, dude, chill. Um, but he's definitely built like a huge cult of personality in the west um yeah okay that's that for today i hope you enjoyed kursk